Do you know what? I'm not an overly competitive person either, or certainly not with others. So the only person I really ever compete with is myself. So if I set a time, if I go for a run today and, you know, it takes me 10 minutes and tomorrow it should take me nine, nine minutes and 50 seconds. So, but I certainly wouldn't race against anyone else. I don't really have a desire to win against anyone else or anyone other than myself. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to this episode of Better Thinking. My guest today is Kath Koshal. She's a remarkable young woman who has taught herself to walk on three separate occasions. Ex-professional athlete, she's broken her back twice, once while playing cricket for New South Wales and once while riding her bike training for an Ironman after recovering from her first broken back. Kath's life is one of inspiration, resilience, and utter strength, and she's turned all of this around to something that she calls the kindness factory, which is giving back in so many different ways. I completely enjoyed this conversation from the aspect of the utter determination, the, the, the stubbornness that Kath demonstrated, but also how she's been able to turn this around into something incredibly positive. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Please don't forget to share and also give us a rating on iTunes. Kath Koshal, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on Better Thinking to talk a little bit about, I suppose, your story, uh, which is, I think, incredibly fascinating, the work that you do in the Kindness Factory and a little bit about also you know, what's made you so passionate about this, this world? We might kind of go on some tangents as we usually do. Um, but, uh, you know, thank you for taking the time. No, of course. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege. Tell me a little bit about, uh, I suppose, your story. I don't know where, where you want to start. I know that you've gone out and, and, and spoken about, about this quite a few times. Um, but I think it's very inspirational and, and, and very interesting to, to hear uh, because it, it's got so many, so many twists and turns and, and, and what you've turned this into is, is, is very impressive. Oh, thanks. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's a really um, apt sort of start point, but um, a motivational speaker all around the world now and sort of I guess the best place to start is where the dream all began for me. So um, it was about eight years of age. I was um, holidaying at my grandparents' place in a place called a really tiny country town called Finlay in regional New South Wales. And um, just hitting the ball, um, cricket ball with my brothers in the park and all those sorts of things and um, just really loved playing the game. So I decided that I wanted to give up ballet and tap and all those sorts of things that mum and dad had enlisted me into but wasn't really enjoying. And I decided as a, a young girl that I wanted to play against my brothers and stop just chasing the ball after them and actually give it a go myself. So playing cricket against the other boys that were my age in our local area in Sydney. So um when I got home from that holiday, I, I told mum and dad that I wanted to sign up for the next year at cricket and, um, you know, I guess the rest is history, but there's a lot more to the story than that. Um, yeah, I just ended up falling in love with the game of cricket. So um, loved everything about it. I'm not really sure. It was almost like every time I walked out onto that park, uh, everything else stopped. It was like a, 
um, just way for me to escape. Nothing bad. I had a great childhood and a really privileged childhood in terms of love and support and people that cared about me, which was great. So I didn't need to escape anything necessarily, but um, just really loved that the idea that you step inside that fence or that rope or whatever it is that you're going into from that boundary perspective and everything was just in that moment. Um, and I think that's why I really love cricket, to tell you the truth. It's such a... It's a team sport, but yet the the results of the entire match can lay on one person's shoulders. So, um, you know, you have to hit that winning boundary to get the the win or your team across the line or you've got to take that wicket or that catch or whatever it may be. So while it is a team sport and you've got 10 others around you at any given time that are sort of cheering you on, Sometimes it's, it's um, largely rested on your shoulder, that responsibility. And I think that's something that really compelled me to really push on and, and pursue cricket as a career, I guess. So um, I got to about 14, so I've been playing for about maybe six years and um, I, was, I was doing okay. So I was selected in some of the New South Wales underage sides and things like that. And women's cricket, I guess, sort of um, had started to make a bit of a name for itself. Um, and it was, you know, starting, there was a pathway that was almost starting to appear for, for girls or young girls or young women that wanted to play for Australia was, or something like that. Was cricket prior to that mainly a boys or a mixed side? How, how did it work as, as obviously yeah. an eight-year-old, you know, going through to 14? Yeah, I played in the boys' competition since so I was 16. So, um and a lot of my friends who still play for Australia still to this day will play with, with boys as well. And I think it, it actually made us tougher cricketers and a bit more skillful. You have to, you know, obviously men are a lot more powerful and faster and they have bigger hitting ranges and things like that. So um, to hold your own against them, you sort of have to level up. So you're almost like constantly proving yourself when you play amongst the boys, which is a good thing, I think. I think it's why Australia is so successful at the moment. We just won a World Cup on Sunday. so. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I played with the boys till 16, but at 14 was starting to get picked in some of the representative women's sides, which was great. Um, and then I ended up basically just finishing my schooling journey. Um, so I did my HSC, did okay, went on to, to uni to get a degree, fast-tracked that degree to then um, take on my first professional contract for Middlesex in the UK. So uh, I just got a call out. They needed a wicketkeeper batter, which is what I was. Um, ended up being more of a batter than a wicketkeeper. But um, over there, they needed both spots filled. So I went over there on that premise, got my flights and accommodation all taken care of and, um, you know, got to play at Lords and do things How like that. How old were you? I was 21 when I first went over there. So um, absolutely loved it. It was a um, sort of defining part in my, my sporting career, I guess, because... Um, you know, I was still a baby, I guess, in some regards. Like I think about 21-year-olds now, and I'm, I'm not that much older, I'm 32 now, but like I think about me being 21, I look at 21-year-olds and they're just sort of babies, aren't they, who haven't really um, experienced much other than, at that point in time, I hadn't really experienced much other than cricket, all I really cared about. I was very one-dimensional, I was a good person, I had good values, I'd like to hope or think, um, but... Um, all I ever really, if it wasn't in my peripheral of cricket, um, so if it didn't involve training or eating or sleeping or further enhancing uh, the way that I played cricket, then I wasn't really interested in engaging with it. So, um, were you it playing professionally? Over. Sorry, were you playing professionally in Australia at the time before you went over to the UK, or you were just no, playing the, the, no, the local? I was playing like local grade cricket. Um, I was in the under 19s New South Wales side, which was great, and then. 
the step up into senior cricket at that um, at that stage is quite tough. So New South Wales have got the strongest um, sporting team by far. It's the most successful domestic sporting team this country's seen. I think you were kind of just playing that local local grade. New South Wales, very strong strong team, honing all your skills with with the yeah. importance of of uh, you know just enjoying it. You weren't you weren't necessarily playing professionally, but still training at a very professional high grade. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess the fact that I was at uni and I had a part-time job, I was balancing and juggling a lot of things at that, that moment in time. So um, Middlesex were willing to sort of get me over there and, um, and help me out a little bit financially as well. Um, I sort of took that with both hands, knowing that um, to play in different conditions, like playing over there overseas on slower wickets and, um, and softer wickets, certainly that it might actually improve my game as well so I could come back with a repertoire of different shots and things like that um so it was, an, it was a no-brainer for me at, at 21 to go over there um and try and enjoy myself as well live abroad it was the first time I'd sort of lived away from home or being close to my parents and family and things like that so um certainly put myself outside of my own comfort zone um but but absolutely adored and loved every minute so I'm still mates with all of the girls that I got to play with over there and um recently they were over here for the world cup watching and some were playing and things like that so I got to catch up with them all and yeah they'll be lifelong friends but um I spent two years there in the UK just sort of playing for Middlesex and doing a bit of travel um, when time would permit over to some European countries and things like that. And, um, and yeah, like thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I guess it was probably my second year at Middlesex that um, I really started to find success. So I got used to the wickets over there. I was scoring plenty of runs uh, and enough for the New South Wales selectors to take notice of the overseas competition and they sort of said it'd be great if you came back. We'd, we'd sort of think we're nearly ready to pick you. If you still score some runs on Australian soil, we'll be ready to pick you here. So come back two years later um, and at the age of 23, I ended up um, debuting for New South Wales. Um, it was in January in 2011 and it was almost like this childhood dream that I had begun at, at the age of eight had started to come true. So what's um, that like? really amazing. Um. Do you know why? so many of us, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I'd play tennis, you know, you, you, you do visualise or, or think one day that you're going to be, you know, a great tennis player or something, or at least that's what you're hoping. Um, but for, for, you know, one in probably 10 million actually go, go ahead and uh, achieve that at a professional level, what was it like going out and, and you know, being there, especially on, on you know, Australian soil, I imagine that was fairly sweet uh, for you. Um, what was that like? Yeah, it was amazing. So, and it was a pretty big event too. So it was televised. It was um, at Adelaide Oval. So pretty, one of my favourite grounds still to this day, not just because I debuted there, but um, just a really special place. It's got the heritage and everything else that's going on there and the scoreboard really nice and all that kind of stuff. So um, special moment for me, I think, I mean, I wasn't, I was a good enough player to be at that level because you're not going to get picked at that level unless you're scoring runs and doing all the right things. So um, I'll start with that. But I wasn't a naturally gifted player. So I wasn't, you know, the Elise Perry or the Elise Sahili or someone like that. I was just someone who had to really grind away at my craft. So Again, passion was a big thing there. I just was so passionate about playing cricket. I loved it so much that if anyone ever told me no, that I wouldn't make it or something like that, I just dared not to believe them. So um, it was definitely a passion thing. 
Oh, I like that. It's not something I'm proud of, but I am so stubborn. Like it is <laughs> annoying to anyone who knows me. There, like that's what's one bad thing about Kathy can tell us. Like she's painfully stubborn. Like I I'm like a dog at a bone. Like I can't let something go, or I won't do something. I just I'm so stubborn in that way. It's it, again. It's not. I don't think it's necessary. It, I mean, it's saved my life in certain respects, but um, it's certainly not something that I'm proud of. Be stubborn, but well, it's interesting. We we often talk about whether it's stubborn, but a different word might be determined, persistent. You know, um, yeah, you know all, all these other words that we, we, we immediately switch over to be like, you know, a positive tense, so to speak. But I think stubbornness, maybe because I am as well, I think it's a yeah. great, great value, you know, to, to, to be, um, you know, uh, so persistent and, and single-minded in, in some contexts can be awfully helpful. In others, you know, maybe not so. Yeah. Agree. Yeah, yeah. We'll rest on that. <laughs> so there was a bit of a, uh, determination, persistence in, in, in working, working at it and, and, and that kind of helped. Yeah, that helped a lot. So um, I guess I, I think I just saw if I was going to get a competitive edge over anyone in terms of being selected that maybe I should work a lot harder in the gym and spend more hours at training and things like that. So I guess to get there eventually in the end, like the way that I did and to debut and to do all those sorts of things, um, it made it all the more sweeter, I guess, because I'd worked so hard for it as well. Um, not to take anything away from anyone else debuting or doing anything like that because it's, it's an amazing achievement um, that everyone should be proud of. But, um, yeah, certainly for me it was it was an incredible sort of time but also a little bit challenging as well. I was fighting off injury at that point, um, which ultimately led to a pretty big injury. But, um, yeah, unbeknownst to me, it was sort of like, you know, I had a little bit of pain and some symptoms and things like that. But I guess the adrenaline of finally making it and having that accoladial sort of thing creep into my mind, um, it just, I, I didn't really feel like I felt the pain until I was off the park. So, again, like that moment that you walk onto the right side of the boundary as in the, in the sanctum of the cricket oval, um, I immediately everything would just stop. So all the pain that I was in, all the things that I was experiencing, all the personal things that were going on for me, and all those sorts of things um, just seemed to stop. And cricket was the only focus. It was like the only. I guess it's a really good way of being um, quite mindful. Like I mean, we, we always sort of um, you know you talk to psychologists and life coaches and people like that. And it's always about mindfulness and being present and in the moment and all those sorts of things. I think cricket did that for me. Um, I think it was the only thing back then um, that I could literally do that I wouldn't be focused on anything else while I was doing it. Um, and that's probably why I appreciated it so much. So, yeah, to have be in that moment, to hit those runs, I mean, I got 50, it was a player match performance. Um, so I performed well in my debut. Um, and, you know, family were there, it was televised, all those sorts of lots of people like well wishes and all those sorts of things. So a really special moment to be able to, to do that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know how else to describe it really. Like it just apart from being immensely special time um, and something that, yeah, I look back on with a smile on my face still and, and I'm quite proud of as well to, to have not given up on the dream and to have made it um, to where I got to. So, yeah, no, it was a happy time. It was really good. What's it like on, on, on that day? Do you look out the crowd? Do you try and see where mum and dad are? What, what goes through your head, you know, when, when you're 
coming up to, you know, getting close to scoring 50, what goes through your head? Are you, 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 um, um, I think I was a little bit too in the zone actually. So I wasn't too worried about the crowd, but, um, a, a, a girl who I grew up down the road from, from Sarah Ailey, um, was also, she was a very good cricketer. And because we were playing in boys competition, she's three or four years older than me, Sarah is. And, um, I sort of almost idolised her because she was a little bit older than me growing up and um, she always played well against the boys and all those sorts of things. And it just so happened that when I was nearing that milestone achievement of 50, she was out there with me. So um, it made it all the more special. And I guess I really enjoyed the moment of that. It's almost like a sliding doors moment. Like I don't know that she should have been that high up in the order, but she was. And it was just a moment that really worked out to be... Um, I guess the most perfect moment it could have been having her out there, someone who I guess I owed a lot to from a career perspective as to where I'd gotten because she was a bit of an inspiration to me. And um, I was probably more focused on giving her a cuddle than than anything else, I think, at that point in time. But um, I don't think I really realised, and you don't when you're doing or you're achieving anything, or I certainly don't anyway, I don't think I ever realised the gravity or the enormity of what I'm doing until after the fact that it's done. So, you know, you walk off the field and, you know, the immediate thing is you're a little bit annoyed because you just got out rather than going on to get 100, for example. So you get over that and then you sort of sit with your teammates and, you know, they're just teammates and they don't think of you any differently just because you scored runs or anything like that. So you certainly don't feel special. And then there's the, you know, the the player of the match award ceremony and things like that. And that's when it might start to sink in a little bit more. And, you know, you get to give mum and dad a cuddle and to do all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, no, it was good. Like, but I had a game the next day as well. So it wasn't like I could go out and celebrate and I had to set my, reset my mind onto the task the next day and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but, but yeah, an, an amazing time or period in my life that um, I look back with like really fond memories. So, yeah, special. Very special time. And what and what happens next? That's uh, you know obviously a dream um, in, in in many ways, and it's a great debut. Uh, what 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 happens next in your journey? Yeah, like I guess like for everything we've just spoke about, that's really positive. Um, it was um, it was only about four games later, so four games into that dream beginning, that it all ended in a very abrupt and, and big way. So. Um, Ended up breaking my back, actually, sort of playing cricket. So had a bit of a prolonged disc issue in my in my spine, which we'd scanned up. We knew about, and I was aware of the risks um, that were associated with me playing. But I was given a fifty fifty chance, so you choose if you want to play or not. And of course, I just made it, so I was going to play and all those sorts of things. And I don't regret that decision for a second. Um, and Is that so, what yeah, that niggling that- pain was on that original? Um- debut that you could feel a bit of pain yeah same pain so to make it to that level I played in the tournament it was a second 11 tournament in Canberra and we scanned up after that and realized it was a bit of a slip disc issue in my spine um, but it wasn't I mean it was bad enough for me to be rested if I chose that um, but not bad enough to um, rule me out completely so I was given the choice you can play or you can not play we won't it won't be judged either way. Like that's completely your choice. It's personal, blah, blah, blah. So um, I guess being given the fact that I only just made it, I was of course going to play and um, and definitely did, but um, ultimately it led to um, the disc and, and um, vertebrae slipping out 
quite abruptly, which ended up leading to having my, my, my back broken for the first time in my life, which was, um, yeah, a really tough experience. So there I was, the, the dream, I guess, had just occurred. And then just as it had started, it was, it was over as well. So I'd worked, you know, my whole or my entire life to get there and, and then it all just come crushing down. So, yeah. Tough. Just for my naiveness, what, what does it mean to break your back? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different descriptions and they're all very dramatic. This one was a dramatic injury. So what happened was, um, I mean, a broken back could just mean that you have a, a, a hairline fracture in one of your vertebrae, for example, but it doesn't mean that you're paralysed or anything like that. In in my instance, um, it was a pretty severe break. So the disc came out quite quickly um, and the two vertebrae that the disc was um, in between of uh, cracked onto each other and part of the bottom vertebrae cracked off and that segment of my vertebrae went straight into my spinal cord. So uh, I was, I was paralyzed. I was uh, unable to feel anything below the waist. Um, couldn't really, couldn't certainly couldn't walk without that feeling um, or mobility or anything like that. So I was rushed off for, for surgery um, immediately to try and like solve and fix the problem. And, um, you know, five surgeries later, they were just sort of shaking their head going, mate, we're so sorry. We just, can't seem to figure this out. The good thing at that point for me is that the the spinal cord wasn't severed. So if it's severed, it's game over. You'll never get anything back. Um, for me, it was just intruding in on. So they got it out. But, I mean, to get that spinal cord back to good health is always a, a pretty severe or significant challenge. So, And did this uh, happen uh, while you were playing or, or uh, you yeah. were able to play out the game and then afterwards yeah, no, no, it was pretty. It was pretty quick. Like it was, Instant. yeah, on the on the floor and uh, on the ground. And um, were you taking a shot? Were you bowling? Was, um, you know, do you know cricket well? Oh, a little bit. No, I don't. I should probably say no. <laughs> okay, I was, I was fielding in cover, um, which is the position in between the batter and the bowler, basically. And um, the ball got hit past me very quickly. It raced off to the boundary for four. And I thought I'll go and on go and get the ball and chase on after it and throw it back in and um, but in no hurry to do so because it had already hit the boundary. So I twisted to my left and as I did, the the, the disc came out that quickly. That was it. it was just a slight twist that no one could have seen would happen and um, unheard of. Sort of how how quickly the disc came out. So normally it's a progressive injury that will just incrementally come out and come out and come out and then it'll start pressing on nerves and you notice symptoms and things like that, which I certainly had. Um, but then it came out that quickly that, yeah, the, like quickly enough for the vertebrae to go bang. Um, and did you drop? Did, did, did your legs just yeah. give way? Yeah, so I just dropped. And then I don't, I remember feeling very confused. So it's a, I mean, when you're in, I guess, that much stress, all the cortisol takes over and all that kind of stuff. So it's always hard to remember it. But, um, I remember being on the floor in a panic state, unable to feel my legs. Um, and you're almost just really confused because you're like, did I just get shot? Like what just happened? I, I didn't do anything abnormal. I literally made a slight twist or turn to my left. And and now now this, like how has this happened? And, you know, it was a bit of a blur. And um, obviously as ambulance and people like that get there, so like lots of different drugs and things like that going through your system. So it's all a bit of a blur for me, but um, I guess the crux of the story is that. But, um, yeah, it was sort of five surgeries later, they're sort of shaking their head going, mate, we're sorry, we're not sure you're ever going to get it back. And um, it was a really confronting time, but one doctor sort of 
I guess, had this idea that they were doing this, it was almost like trial at that point in Australia, trial surgery, um, but there was one, only one surgeon in the country doing it, Matthew Scott Young, um, and it's called a total disc replacement. So the, the surgery that I was doing to try and fix the problem was called fusion surgery, but I wasn't getting any, any results from it. And I guess the problem with a surgery like that is that um, with a fusion you get very limited mobility in what you can do after the fact. Um, and I was only 23 at the time, so it's not something that they wanted for me anyway, but they weren't really sure what could they, what they could possibly do. Um, so it turns out we did some tests and some more scans and things like that, and because of my fitness and my age, I, I qualified for this surgery. So um, I was a good candidate and they thought it could be a success. So uh, the only place that they did it in Australia at that point in time was in the Gold Coast. So uh, off I went, dad come with me to support me and all those sorts of things. Um, and I went to the Gold Coast and I had that surgery. Um, it's, it's a pretty big surgery. So, um, I mean, obviously with normal spinal surgeries, it would make sense to cut through the back and access the spine that way, which they did for the first couple. Um, this one, it's a bit different. So um, rather than cutting through the back, they cut through the stomach and they shift your vital organs aside and they access the spine through your stomach, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and so it's, it's very invasive. Um, it's a, it's a longer recovery time, but, um, in saying that you actually cut through a lot less scar tissue when you go through the stomach rather than the back. Um, so, uh, off I went, did that, had that surgery, laid there for two weeks in traction and, um, yeah, still, still lots of head noise sort of creeping in, you know, was this worth it? Will I recover? Will I take any steps again? Will I walk? Um, will I get a feeling back? All those sorts of things. And then, uh, yeah, two weeks later, after that initial recovery, I, I got up and with the help of my doctors and, and physios and the experts, I, I took my first steps, which was great. So still un unable to feel anything below the waist, but certainly um, on a trajectory to, to recovering and, and making a good recovery at that point in time. Let me jump in for a minute. Um, you used the word head noise. Uh, can you talk about what, what you mean by that and, and maybe also a little bit about... Uh, maybe when you got back from, no, sorry, got back, uh, got to the hospital after that turn um, uh, on the field, being told about your your um, back being broken and obviously the severing of uh, all the intrusion of your spinal cord. Can you remember what what the head noise was or, or what you were going through at that personal level? Um, it's really interesting. So this obviously had some other things going in life. Um, after this sort of initial injury and things like that, which probably um, I had really bad head noise, so bad mental health um, and I wasn't coping with circumstances. I think in these moments, so when I first broke my back and it was surgery and surgery and surgery and bad news and all that kind of stuff, all I remember really feeling, I never felt stressed or down or out or anything like that about it, um, which is a bit unique because it was pretty life-altering news and life altering injuries and all those sorts of things. I think I just had a lot of fight in me at that point. So I had a belief that I'd be okay, I think. Um, and so mental ill health then or bad mental health or poor mental health, whatever you want to call it, um, hadn't really crept in. The head noise that came when I was like lying there for two weeks was, um, I guess when you come out of an invasive surgery like that where your internal organs have all been shifted and so they're acclimatising back to where they should be and all those sorts of things in that recovery mode, um, throw in then or add to that that you've got a lot of drugs going through your system, so painkillers and morphine and endone and really heavy sedatives and things like that to keep you as still as possible. 
Um, it, it, I've never been, I've never responded well to pain medication. I've had to take a lot of it in my life. Um, I'm certainly, I'd never be a candidate for being an addict of those. I'd never get addicted to them because I hate the way that they made me feel. Um, it was almost like this feeling of dread that I was always in when I had them. So, um, yes, they're important because I would have been in a lot, lot more pain without them, but um, never really enjoyed the process. I always felt like I had a bit of a cloud above my head and um, I couldn't really ever get it out of it and I couldn't ever think clearly and all those sorts of things. So the head noise that was creeping in was, I guess, first and foremost that, you know, has this worked? So I'm in a position that, I mean, I'm still in a lot of pain regardless of the things going through my system, but also was it worth it? So am I going to come out of this in two weeks' time and will I be able to walk like they're maybe saying I will be able to um, or has it all been for nothing? And, um, you know, I started to worry about my future. Like I, I was an athlete. That's how I earned money and sport was something that I identified myself with very strongly so um yeah it was a it was an interesting time um certainly like wasn't on a a downward spiral into depression or anything like that but it was the first probably time that I really started to notice doubt and and yeah like head noise I just define as just sort of like you know worry and stress and things like that rather than it being about you know, a diagnosable condition or something like that. So it was just a lot of dread and worry, I guess, at that point in time about what my future would look like, I suppose. What do you think gave you that belief initially that things would be okay? Where does that come from? Um, I recently did an interview with someone. Um, it's about a book and TV series and things like that. And she said, do you have any fear? And I was just like, of course I do. Like I'm a normal person. And um, she just said the same thing. And I was just like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm 32 now and I'm like, I, I still sometimes feel like a naive child. Like there's so much about the world that I want to learn and to do still and all those sorts of things. And every single day I'm amazed by certain things that happen all around me. And I guess I've always had that sense of um, belief, not just in myself or that like I'm, I've got an, an overinflated sense of my own abilities, certainly not. Like, like I'm humble and things like that. I think it was just that it was a shocking injury and really hard to believe that that could be the final result for me, I think. Um, and I, I don't know that, well, it was a belief, but I don't mean belief in a sense that people you know how people just go you know you got to believe in yourself and think it wasn't like that it was just I, I just felt comfortable in my own skin to know that I could overcome it I think um I mean at that point in time I was like not only will I overcome it but I'll represent Australia playing cricket like it wasn't and I don't know why that it, again it wasn't an ego thing or anything like that I just didn't want that to be my future so I refused to believe it maybe um mm. but uh yeah I've never really broken it down in in a sense like that but um, not sure. Yeah, I don't know why, but um, certainly didn't struggle too much throughout that period. It was almost like, and maybe this is a, another, like I'm saying this out loud for the first time, but, you know, when you're having surgery after surgery after surgery, it's almost like you get prepped for surgery, you go into surgery, you come out of surgery and you recover, and then it's almost time to go back in because I had so many of them in a row. So it wasn't like I had the chance to really reflect in those moments to go, oh, I need to struggle or I feel really sad about this or anything like that. It was almost like prep, surgery, recover, oh, I've got to prep again so I'm back onto task of preparing mentally and physically and all those sorts of things for the next surgery. So that could have something to do with it as well, but, yeah. And the head noise came in when in actual fact everything stopped. There, there, yeah. there, was, there was no surgery after that one in terms of you've got to sit here for two weeks and do nothing, you know, and then that, yeah. the mind starts to creep in and go, oh, 
what if it doesn't and starts doubting and questioning and worrying naturally uh, because it's got more space to do so. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And what's next? You, you, you were talking about uh, taking your first steps. Uh, how, how does that all happen? Does a physio come in? You know, are you on a program well before that? Do you, do you start to feel your toes? I mean, I, I don't know how this all works, whether you know, when you're paralyzed, do you feel anything or do you just feel nothing? Maybe talk no, about yeah. it. Um, no, so um, I, I guess it was more like there's a day. So it's almost like your markers you've got to meet and then you've got to, you know, your bowel has to start working and all these sorts of things that you have to sort of tick off along the way. And then when it's deemed that you're at a point in your recovery to be able to do that through checks from the doctors and things like that, then, um, yeah, you get up and um, that's what I did. It was it was no more complex or complicated than that. I just sort of sat up in bed and felt a bit woozy and dizzy because it's the first time I'd done that and, you know, my spine had to readjust and all those sorts of things. And then... They got me gingerly to my feet and I, with their help, so I still couldn't feel anything at that point in time, but with their help, um, yeah, I took my first steps, which was great. Um, and then it was almost like, you know, you only took two today, but tomorrow you'll take four and the next day you'll take eight. And um, then I was well enough to sort of be considered, I guess, an outpatient. So I spent six more weeks there in the Gold Coast recovering from a rehab facility there. Uh, and then uh, went what back. Was it like? What was it like taking your steps again? Um, yeah, very different, um, because I couldn't feel my legs. Um, I almost felt like I was cheating. So I had someone guiding my legs to do it for me. Um, but I guess it was retraining my brain. So the body brain connection, um, getting that neural pathway quite strong again, so that hopefully when I got feeling back, it would be an easier process or an easier step into. So, so you were telling um, your legs to go, but they weren't still necessarily no, so that, uh, it, the transmitters weren't really working still at that point. So um, someone was guiding my legs for me and it was like I did, I, I studied sport and exercise science. So I knew a lot about human momentum and physics and all that kind of stuff. So it was quite helpful to have that degree and that background in education to be able to help with the recovery. But uh, like relief as well to have those steps taken and to be upright for the first time in a long time. Um, so a lot of relief. I didn't cry or anything like that. It wasn't like an over joyous, joyous situation. It was just like, okay, the job's done. I've, I've taken my first steps and tomorrow I'll double that and the day after that I'll double that. So I guess I was just very task orientated. So it was like a goal and then I'd try and reach the goal. Um, and that's, I guess, what a lot of my life's looked like still to this day. It's just set a goal, achieve it, set a new goal, achieve that, and set bigger goals and bigger ones and bigger ones. So, um, Is that the athlete yeah. inside you, so to speak? I honestly don't know. I do, do you know what? I'm one of four kids uh, and I've got three older brothers. So I'm the youngest and only girl. And maybe that's got something to do with it because, you know, I always had to – I didn't have to fight for everything. Again, like I love all my brothers and my mum and dad are great as well. We've got great – I've got a great family. So it wasn't like I had to fight for it, but – um, you know, being the only girl, you probably feel like you've got a bit more to prove than your brothers and things like that. Um, so maybe that has something to do with it, but they were always very supportive of me as well. So it wasn't like they ever stopped me from doing anything because I was a girl or their sister or anything like that. So yeah, I don't really know where it comes from or why, why I am that way. Um, again, do you know what? I'm not an overly competitive person either or certainly not with others. So the only person I really ever compete with is myself. So if I set a time, I go for a run today and you know it takes me 10 minutes and tomorrow it should take me nine 
nine minutes and 50 seconds. So, but I certainly wouldn't race against anyone else. I don't really have a desire to win against anyone else or anyone other than myself, really. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm competitive, but only internally, not externally. But, um, yeah, so re- rehab was just an interesting sort of place there. It was outpatient um, in, in the ring, in the Gold Coast, and then um, went for my final checkup. And, you know, my stomach wounded healed enough at that point in time to then – um, for them to say that I could fly back home to Sydney and be around my teammates and my support networks again and, and continue the, re- the recovery process from here in Sydney. So, um, that's so what you I did. didn't necessarily go home, so to speak. You went back to to cricket. Well, or yeah, you, I went or, home. or is Sydney home as well? No, Sydney's home. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. My yeah, apologies. Yeah. Sydney's home. My family are there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was great. Um, and just sort of continued rehab from here in Sydney and did that three mornings a week. And, you know, I guess you fast track, I can't go through all the story, but fast track certain moments and, um, uh, was sort of walking independently. So I still had trouble with my left leg at that point in time. It was about six months after that surgery and, um, was doing really, really well. Um, and everything seemed to be on track for a return to cricket possibly and all those sorts of things, which was great and um, almost deemed like a bit of a miraculous recovery at that point in time considering significant injuries that I had um, or had had sustained. And, um, yeah, I never sort of forget waking up one morning and um, feeling quite different in my left leg and really heavy and dead sort of feeling and um, thought I must have slept on a little bit funny and then, looked under the covers really early in the morning and, and realised that my entire left leg was blue, like a bruised sort of colour. And um, to cut a very long story short, um, I was at high risk of having my left, left leg amputated. And um, what had happened was the, the doctor in closing my, my stomach wound initially had, had nixed the femoral artery really slightly and um, had a lot of nerve damage because of the spinal cord injury, which simply meant that the blood wouldn't flow into my leg. So... Um, rushed off for more emergency surgery when they found that bleed and um, and then basically, yeah, got the news that um, I needed to keep my leg healthy and in order to do that, I wasn't out of the woods. I could lose it at any time if the pressure back like, dropped back down and all those sorts of things. So you should go to rehab um, full-time, so pack up your life, quit your job, let go of your contract, all those sorts of things and off to rehab you go. So that's what I did. I sort of packed up my life and um, really confronting experience. I was still 23 at this point in time. And, um, you know, there was, I was surrounded by the elderly, like geriatrics and stroke and neuro patients and all those sorts of things and really struggled in, in that environment to really, I guess, accept that I was there and that I was there for a, a fairly significant period of my life as well. You know, they said to me six to 12 months and you might have it healthy enough to be able to walk, but we probably don't think it's ever going to happen. And, yeah, it's going to be a big challenge, but it's the best place for you to go. So that's what I did. And um, certainly the first month was a really big struggle for me. I remember calling one of my best friends actually and, and tears running down my face just saying, you know, you've got to come and pick me up. I can't stay here. I just, they can cut my leg off. I don't care. Um, I can't stay in this environment for much longer. And um, she gave me a lot of tough love, but it's exactly what I needed to hear. She sort of said, you know, it's, it's it's killing me to see or to hear that you're in this way and I get it like you deserve to feel that way but 
I'm not going to pick you up because I know that it's the right place for you to be. But what I will do is, is say this. I'll work, walk this journey beside you um, every step that you take. Like I'm here for you. You can call me at any hour of the day. I'll pick it up. I'll come visit you. I'll do everything necessary. But I will not come and pick you up because I know that this is where you need to be. So um, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear her reinforcement. And I guess like a lot of tough love from her as well to then set my, my mind to task of ultimately teaching myself how to walk again. So... Why do you um, think tough love uh, worked for you? What what was it um, about that 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 you know? Yeah, you know? okay. Um, it, it's not to say that everyone would respond in that way. I think I probably uh, you know again I was young and all this stuff had happened to me, and so I probably haven't learned enough about myself and what drove me internally. I think one thing that a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I speak all around the world on this stuff now as well, which is great. But one thing I think that a lot of adults especially neglect is understanding their own values. So when we're confronted with an issue or, um, you know, a diagnosis or like whatever it is. So for me, it was, you're going to be a paraplegic and you're never going to walk again. Right. Suddenly I've become, if I don't understand my own values, I become, um, identify with that so I'm not I'm no longer Kath Koshal the cricket player or Kath Koshal the great auntie or whatever it is that I really am proud of myself with I'm now Kath Koshal the paraplegic for example and I think you know call it a cancer diagnosis or whatever it is whenever we get confronted with reality or news like that we almost then get get like we identify with it too much and we're redefined by that diagnosis and I think if we don't that the risk that we take in not understanding our values is that if we don't then that's the outcome and we lose to it a lot more than we should. So for me, I guess I'm one of my values, obviously kindness and empathy and all these sorts of things and stubbornness and loyalty are a part of my, the things that make up my values. But one of them is, um, is just people. So um, the thing that drives me most out of anything in this world is the belief that people have in me. So um, an example of that is if someone says to me, I believe in you and I've got your back and I am invested in this journey with you, I then go, okay, my problem's almost halved. So I'm not in this journey alone. It's not like I'm the only one that's wanting me or willing me to walk again. It's 30 other people who are sending me text messages every day. And if they're believing in me, then I've got to believe in myself and I've got to do it for them, if not me. So if the, you know, the carrot at the end of this this road um, is just that it's self-fulfillment in me and being able to walk, then that's great. But if there's 30 other people that really want that goal to happen as well, then I'm not going to give up or I'm less likely to give up. And that's not to say that everyone is in the same or they're internally driven by other people as well. But for me, that was certainly something that um, really helped me. And I guess then the more that my life went on and the more challenges and struggles that I went through, um, I was able to identify that, you know, people drove me and that if I needed to, I should call them and all those sorts of things as well. So it almost became um, a strength that I found in, throughout that struggle um, that I could tap into or rely on in the future as well, which was, yeah, I mean, it was good in hindsight to, to know that and to be a bit more self-aware and all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I think that was a roundabout way of answering that question. But, yeah. Almost in some sense being part of a team and also being able to call on your team and say, I'm struggling, you know, uh, get me out of here. I don't care. I'm, 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 I'm not in a good place. Obviously the, the head noise is, 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 uh, you know, allowed and well, uh, get me out of here. But she was able to kind of reconfirm the team mentality that, that, you know, we believe in you. I believe in you, you know, I'll be next to you. And, and, and that was for you at least, you know, a, a strong motivator to, to, to kind of 
um, not only do it for yourself, but also appreciating the love from others. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good summary. Mm. That, yeah. So you get back on the horse, obviously, at that point. Yeah, so I guess after that phone call, I set myself the task. So I think I just realised that there was only one person getting me out of there and that was me. So I needed to take accountability for that process, I guess. And as hard as that was, um, it became a, a big motivator for me as well. So every day waking up going, no one else is going to do this for me. The only person that's getting, like if, you, if you're going to sit here and hate this environment, then hate it, but hate it knowing that you're going to get out of there quicker if you do things better. So um, just set myself to task, which um, was no mean feat, but my luck changed about a month into my stay. I ended up meeting a, another patient um, who was of similar age and mindset. Um, and I guess like up until that point, I'd, I'd sort of been surrounded by the elderly and had to befriend them, which was, you know, I love that. I learned a whole lot about perspective and myself and the world around me and all those sorts of things. But to meet someone of similar age and mindset, so his name was Jim, um, it was a refreshing experience and, and initially I think I thought to myself, well, when I got here, I didn't really have anyone to show me the ropes, like show me how to get around or which doctor I was best to deal with or where to get the good yogurt from and all those sorts of things that you just don't <laughs> think of, I guess. So it sounds really fickle, but in rehab, it's really important to get the good yogurt first. But um, no, so I just sort of thought, well, I'll just show him the ropes. I'll, I'll make him feel as welcome as I can. And um started off as friends and then ended up falling in love, which um, is, it, it's a, I mean, it sounds funny because who finds love in a rehab centre, right? Um, uh, which, yeah, I mean, it was amazing though. And it was, it, I, you wouldn't hear too many rehab patients quoting themselves saying, I feel really lucky that I'm in rehab. I've found the love of my life. Um, and yet here I am still in a wheelchair, struggling to walk, all those sorts of things. So, um, I guess Jim just taught me a whole lot about myself, the world around me, love, um, all those sorts of things. And I guess the thing that's like made our journey somewhat easier was that we started to dream about a life outside of rehab, which made the process a hell of a lot easier. So, yep, we don't like it here. We know that we have a process to follow to get ourselves out of here. But the thing that's going to make it easier is dreaming about a future outside of this environment where we're healthy and fit and well and um, and don't ever have to come back here. So, um, you know, for us, it was those dreams, I guess, looked like it'd be four kids and three boys and a girl, just like my family, a house in Broadwater on the Gold Coast, pet turtles, dogs, you name it, we sort of dreamt it, which was great. Um, and uh, I guess, yeah, he, our injuries were bad enough to be in that environment for a lengthy period of time, but about 12 months after us meeting, I was considered um, what's known as an outpatient. So it just meant that you no longer like lived inside that rehab environment. You just um, visited three mornings a week, had your checks done, your checkups and testing and all that kind of stuff. And then you could go back home or to work or whatever it is that you were doing it at that moment in time. And Jim had a day to go before he was to be considered that as well. So um, his injuries were sustained after mine. So um but it was doing really, really well and, you know, we just put the lease on a house together and we're going to start our life that we've been dreaming of the very next day and that night it all just sort of, yeah, ended in a pretty big way. So he ended up, yeah, taking his own life and um, it just crushed me beyond belief. I, I didn't I, di I didn't really know what to do, who to turn to. Um, I was so young um, and then I guess the way that I kept thinking about it in my own head was that, you know, I'd... I'd lost this dream of, of playing sport and playing cricket for my country and 
doing all of that and then I lost the person who taught me that there was so much more to life than hitting a ball around a park and playing cricket um, who'd given me so much hope and perspective and the reality with with the suicide was that and you hear so many stories out there like this these days um, that he was never going to be the one that was that guy that took his own life always the vibrant one and the one that was always up for other people and um, I guess that complicated the grief process a lot for me um so it would have been hard to lose him in any way um considering the love that we had for each other and all those sorts of things but then the unanswered questions that um arise when you lose someone to suicide um it, it's quite uh, there's no other way I can describe it than it being quite torturous so um I just sort of um that's when my, my mental health really declined the, the worst it's ever been and um I just I didn't really know what to do I, I knew that I needed help I didn't know wasn't that I, I knew how to access it because there were psychologists and people like that that I could turn to. But I think for me it was the fact that if I signed up for that service or went and saw that psychologist or whatever it is, I'd actually have to then confront the things that I was thinking inside my own head and I just simply wasn't ready for it um, for a good period of time. So it was about 10 months after Jim passed away and um, I just had a complete emotional breakdown, mental breakdown, whatever you really want to call it. I had to be um, – I went back to rehab and – walked past his old room and just lost it. So just didn't had a complete sort of out out of body experience where I just didn't really know who I was or what I was doing. And um, I remember it was about four male nurses pinned me down and sedated me. And I woke up from that experience um, feeling a lot of negative and bad emotions. And uh, a doctor come up and said, you know, we just want you to know that you're okay and. Um, you're going to be okay and all those sorts of things and what you're going through right now is completely normal so the experiences that you've had are completely abnormal and but your response to them is normal you're going to get through this we'll get you some help and all those sorts of things and I had this really bad association with the word normal I think in that phrase in that I just kept thinking do you know what if this is normal if this is the way that I'm going to feel for the rest of my life um, considering the things I've been through then I don't really want to be normal to to tell you the truth because I don't want to feel this way Um, and so I, 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 did, I, I didn't panic. I, I felt quite calm in doing this. I just sort of got myself out and up and was on crutches and things like that and I ended up flying to the Gold Coast to really try and find myself. It was where we were supposed to start our life together and do all those amazing things that we dreamed of doing. And I got there and I reconnected with Jim's mum and we spent some time together and the most amazing thing happened throughout that that experience. So um, about a week into being there in the Gold Coast, I was sat down at a coffee table in our house and um, on the coffee table there was a pen and a piece of paper and I, I still to this day don't know why it was there. It could have been for a shopping list or something like that. And I don't know why, what compelled me to do what I did next, but I'm so glad that it happened because it really changed my life and turned my life around. I, I picked up the pen and I started writing down a list of names on this piece of paper and they were just names of people who had ever helped me in my life. So family, friends, doctors, physios, people like that. And there are about 30 names on this list. And then I just picked up my phone. I called every single one of them simply just to say thanks. Um, and it was amazing to hear their response in that they were quite relieved to hear from me, to know that I was okay and that I'd be okay. But before each of them hung up, they said, you know, before you go, I just want to let you know that I'm really proud of you. And, um, you know, you'll get through this and all those sorts of things. So I went through that process and I guess it's, the power of gratitude isn't it like um which we hear so often is that something we should engage in and how it rewires your brain and the chemicals and all that kind of stuff that can happen but when put into action it's actually one of the most powerful life-altering things that you can do for yourself so it sounds um, like you connected with your team again hmm. 
yeah, you could say that. I've never really thought about it in that way. But, yeah, I did. Um, and, and I felt quite, like, obviously, I, I don't do anything unless I'm feeling it. But um, I, they literally saved my life. Not in a way that I was never suicidal or anything like that. But had they not been, like, I mean, I, I work a lot with homeless people now and I'll have dinner with them once a week. And part of that is actually learning in myself. So they ask if I, I can give them money and I say, no, but I'll buy you a meal and you can sit down and eat it with me and I want to understand what's got you to this position. Not to pry or be nosy or anything like that, but sometimes it's good for them to even talk about it. And so the first time I did that, I sat there almost in tears going, here's a person who's been through maybe half of the things that I have Um, The difference between their position and my position is that I've had love and care and people who, like, had persistence in never giving up in me, right? Had I not have had those influential people in my life, my family, my friends, um, doctors, people who believed in me and, like, saw me going in a downward spiral and chose not to give up on me, then I'd probably be in that position too. What I've turned to alcohol or drug, I'm not sure. I've never really have done that, but... Could I have? And I think the answer is definitely yes. When we're mentally unwell um, and, you know, bad things happen to us, it's inevitable. When No one's going to come through life being completely unscathed. There's always moments that are going to define who we are and how we respond and how we choose to respond and all those sorts of things, which, again, is inevitable. Um, but for me, I guess I just considered myself really lucky to have those people who um, didn't allow me to go into a downward spiral enough to end up on the streets or be in an adverse situation or living a life ultimately that I wasn't proud of. So, um, and I just, I, I felt immensely grateful to them. And that's what prompted me to call them, I guess, just to say thanks. And, um, you know, I come back home to Sydney, there was absolutely no judgment by any of my family and friends. They were all at the airport, gave me a cuddle, did all that kind of stuff. And, um, I guess that was almost like the rebirth of me. I think I just, you know, finished off that trip going um, just because I was an athlete doesn't mean that I have to be one now. So what is the new version of me? The good thing about that was I was 24, so I still had a lot of years ahead of me. I'd experienced some pretty significant things in life at a young age, but they sort of had me in this position where I guess I had a lot more perspective than I would have had I not have gone through those experiences. So... Um, I just decided that I'd, I'd take it easy for a little bit in a way that I didn't have to pressure myself into being or taking the next job that came about or anything like that and just started to really, I guess, connect with others who I hadn't in the, you know, in the business of life and tragedy and all those sorts of things. Hadn't had that opportunity to connect with all those people. Um, so I started doing that and then I ended up getting a job at, at Cricket New South Wales. They threw me a lifeline and offered me a job as like the operations manager, so running logistics for games and Turns out I was quite good at that because I loved cricket, obviously. So I had a great job and was focused on a career then in sports administration and all those sorts of things, but um, still felt quite lost, I guess. Um, You know, what was my purpose? I didn't go through all these things in life to just suddenly exist for nothing. So I just started doing small things for other people. Um, It was really random. Um, One day I was at a petrol station and there was no one there. It was really eerie silence, which never happens. Like whenever you're at a petrol station, there's always people there. And I was like, it would be great if there was someone here. I would have, I'd buy their petrol. And I was like, I'll do it next time. And I don't know why I wanted to do it or anything like that. I just simply found or saw an opportunity that maybe I could make someone's day if they were there. And as I was finishing up feeling. How did that pop into your head? Well, it was actually a conversation I had with a psychologist. Um, So I sort of had to confront all my demons and things like that. And I guess my recovery had sort of turned on its head. So I was doing really, really well emotionally and all those sorts of things. And um, she said, 
you know, it's it's not a it's none of my business, but it's something that I'm curious about in treating you. And we've got a great relationship. Like she she's amazing and all those sorts of things. Um, that we don't she doesn't treat me anymore or anything like that. But um, yeah, she sort of said to me, if you were to look back on on your journey, if you were to look back and um, and pinpoint one thing that stands out, and it could be good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, whatever the word is, whatever the thing is out of all the things that you've been through at such a young age, what is the one thing that stands out? And I didn't have to think that hard. Um, and I just said to her kindness and it almost, she almost sort of spat at that reference. And I was like, what? And just, that doesn't seem to add up to me, you know, trauma, grief, loss doesn't really equal kindness. And I said, well, who, in whose opinion, like who went through all this stuff? So um, the way I articulate that in a story, I guess, is that, you know, when you're in a wheelchair like I have been and you can't reach a lift button because it's up too high and you can't manoeuvre yourself, you're not strong enough to move yourself out of the chair and a random stranger walks past and they see that struggle, the fact that you can't help yourself in that moment and without intention or without any wanting any accolade or, um, or thanks or praise or recognition, they press that button for you and they walk off into the distance like it meant absolutely nothing to their day because it really didn't. Let's, let's face it, those are the moments that really stood out for me, the moments where people helped me or people were kind to me or noticed that I might have been sad so they smiled at me. And then, of course, my family and friends who are ultimately very kind people as well. So when I considered that, I was like, well, maybe I could give back some of the kindness that I've received. So certainly not to the people that have given it to me, but maybe I could pay it forward. And that's my intention behind all of that. And I thought, if that was the impact that it had on a person who was struggling quite deeply in small acts of kindness really making a difference to my journey, then imagine what it could do for people who aren't facing challenges or who are like doing different things, whatever it may have been. So I guess that was the crux behind it all. But um, yeah, it was um, certainly an interesting sort of little period. And I did one act of kindness and then it got quite, you know, snowballed and all those sorts of things and people started taking notice and the kindness did you buy, someone's, did you buy someone's petrol i did yeah her name well, what was did Aaron. they say um, can you tell us about that um yeah yeah um uh so it was it was a mini that came into the petrol station she gets to the bowser and i sort of i mean you're in a pretty vulnerable position when you're doing that right so i sort of tentatively walked up to her and i said look hi my name's cash i'm erin and i said I'd really like to buy you petrol today. And she said, sure. Um, and then she said, no, hang on, why do you want to buy my petrol? And I said, oh, look, I've just, I've been through a bit and I really feel like this could make my day as well as yours. And she went, okay. And I didn't share my story with her. I just said, look, I've been through a bit. And then she said, no one's ever done this for me. Um, why, why are you doing this? And I said, simply because I can, like I'm in a position where I can today. And um, turns out she had a, an amazing backstory too and she sort of said, you know, I'll never forget this moment and all those sorts of things and she shared that on social media and so then all these people were sharing it and getting behind it and all those sorts of things and, um, yeah, that was, I guess, the start of it all. Like I just then kept doing things like that, so dinner for the homeless and wheelchairs for kids and all those sorts of things and um, it was almost like this movement was then born of me paying for the kindness that I'd received. So... Um, that was great, but it was always just going to be a little bit of a side project. Um, yeah, uh, that I never really thought would go anywhere in, at all, really. Um, and I, I suppose at this point, the the part that I'm neglecting to mention is that I got quite physical again. I was back doing triathlons and um, training quite intensely for endurance sports and things like that. Um, and uh, I got really good at it. So I was um, signed up for the Port Macquarie Ironman in 2016. 
2015. Um, so I identified that kindness factor was established in 2015, was training for Ironman events and things like that. And then um, in preparation for that event, I went on a, a training bike ride with my, my two best mates um, and um, unfortunately got hit by a car from behind and broke my back again and um, in four places, um, you know, woke up to the news, I was paralysed, thought I'd never walk again for the second time in my life. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was back to sort of square one, so I had to go back to rehab and do all those sorts of things. But in this instance, the most amazing thing happened, and I guess it's a true story about human spirit and connection and all those sorts of things. It was in the news, so people knew that I was in a pretty bad way and banged up and back in a hospital and no longer able to give out the kindness that I had been. So they would write to me. I woke up to all these messages and emails and, you know, inbox messages and you name it, like hundreds and thousands of people had written to me saying, look, Kath, I'm really sorry to hear about the accident. Um, but I wanted to let you know that because of you today, I mowed my neighbour's lawn or I donated blood or little kids would write to me and say, I, I tied my sister's shoelace because she doesn't know how to. And all these acts of kindness started getting sent my way. And I thought, this is absolutely amazing. Um, this thing that I've started that was a way of me giving back kindness has now turned full circle and people are now starting to treat each other with a bit more kindness and respect and dignity and all those sorts of things. So I spoke to the website guy and he then said, well, we'll flip it. We'll set a goal to reach a million acts of kindness um, and others can contribute to that goal. So it's not just about you, it's about everyone around the world. And um, yeah, I've done lots of different things as a result and since that moment, but um, we're actually about to hit the million. So we're at 965,000. Um, and, and 83. And 83. There you go. Right, there you go. Um, so, yeah, it's. Um, I never thought we'd get there. I, honest to God, didn't think we'd ever get to a million, but we're really close now, which is um, great. I, I now travel the world speaking and sharing my story and, um, yeah, getting the message out there and promoting kindness at every chance. But in probably the most, uh, like, you know, the, the most recent advancements, the thing that I've always been most passionate about. So um, uh, I... I guess for every uh, corporate engagement that I would get from a speaking standpoint, I'd get a very reactive call from a school principal or a teacher uh, whereby the kids knew my story and they wanted to hear it. But not only that, um, it would be in a very reactive way where they had lost a kid to suicide, a student, or there was a bullying epidemic or something adverse was going on in that environment. I would drop everything and I would run and I'd go into the school and try and give the kids some hope. And when I'd get there, uh, you know, the teachers would say, this is amazing. Thank you so much for coming. Obviously, you're a busy person. You can't come back tomorrow or the next day or even next year. Could you leave us with anything that we could, I guess, continue this legacy of kindness? And so we recently partnered with Kaplan, who are a global education provider, who are, and we've just about finished, um, uh, I guess it's the first of its kind, kindness curriculum. So it teaches kids soft skills, I guess, that um, are, are so needed um, in this day and age um, but so often neglected because people are time poor and, you know, maths and science and literature and things like that all take over. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a really interesting journey to get that. So it's things like, you know, trust and honesty and empathy and positivity and, like, you name it, there's these 13 attributes that are thrown into this mix where kids get to be taught about perspective and all sorts of things that they often wouldn't have. And I guess one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is um, that um, when this all began and it was about acts of kindness and a million and it's great that we're going to hit that, but at the end of the day, what does it all mean, right? I mean, lives have been saved. People have donated kidneys on our behalf and things like that, um, which has been absolutely amazing and it still uh, makes me smile that people would go to that effort to help another person out which is incredible 
but at the end of the day, I was like, what, what is this all about? What's the legacy that I want to leave behind? When I'm dead and buried, what are, what are, what's the thing that I wanted to have left on the world? And I think the answer to that is that it needed to be, or kindness needed to be instilled in children so that they can then inspire the next generation who inspire the next generation. And we're after a bit of a generational change, so we don't believe we're going to see results overnight, but wouldn't it be nice that if a kid was started on this kindness curriculum Today, for example, in kindergarten and in 13 years' time when they graduate from high school, they've now got the ethos or the building blocks to be a naturally kind person and all those sorts of things that would be incredible. Um, so, um, yeah, we're hoping for a generational change and it's not to say that adults now can't impact the world either because I certainly think that they can um, through kindness and perspective and things like that as well. But, um, yeah, our focus as a charity now both here and in the US is on kids and, and instilling kindness as much as possible in children so that they can carry that legacy through for us um, for the generations to come, which has um, been amazing. I never thought, I mean, I just took you through my story, but I never thought at 23 before I broke my back for the first time that, um, you know, I'd be leading a movement of goodwill or social impact around the world, um, which is something that I, I think is probably like a, Again, like a lot of people ask me lots of different questions and things like that, but I think it's something that people can probably can consider that if they're not in a place where they're happy or proud of at this very moment in time, it can be changed um, and it doesn't have to be just because you're on a path that you're leading down that you're not so, I guess, content with doesn't mean that you can't change it and do something completely out of the sphere or completely different. So um, you couldn't pay me any amount of money in the world to do anything different to what I'm doing um, to this day. So... I love, I love my life. I actually, um, I, get, I also get asked a lot, you know, if you could package up your life and, um, you know, start afresh from eight years ago um, or you could have the one that you've had, I'd, I'd definitely choose the life that I've had. It's taught me so much about myself and, and the world and um, put me in a, an incredible position now to, to do the things that I'm doing and, yeah, no amount of money would stop me from, from doing what I am doing now. So, um, yeah, it's been, certainly been a one hell of a ride but um yeah I'm, I'm still standing and and loving every minute of it what do you think you've uh i suppose learnt what have been some of those things obviously there's a big big change from cricket through to you know the kindness factory and the work that you're doing now yeah uh, what do you think have been some of the takeaways for you I wouldn't necessarily say lessons because I think we we take different things from from different situations. Yeah. What have you taken away from this? Um, I think genuine authenticity in anything that you're doing is really important. Um, so and and so, so for me, it would be probably authenticity, pa- having passion for what you're doing, and then showing a consistent approach to it as well. Um, I think the authenticity thing comes out in that if you're not authentically you and doing something that you're completely aligned with, then people will feel that energy. Um, so for me, it became kindness and it was the only thing that I could think to do as my next move or next step and, and it was the most important thing that I could do. And I think then when I meet with people or um, share my story or do anything like that, a lot of people are almost like I, I, I'm invested in this emotionally, not from a financial standpoint, but they're invested in the story and they believe in the mission as much as what I do. So I think having that authenticity is, is really important. Um, from a consistency approach, I think you need to be able to sort of show um, not a track record, but it needs to almost not be an overnight fad or thing that you're doing. You need to, if you have a genuine belief in it and authentically you do believe in it, then you'll be consistent in, in every single way as well. A lot of people refer to this moment, it's called like the tipping point, I guess, where 
certainly as entrepreneurs, um, you know, um, they, they'll work for five odd years and, you know, feel like they're grinding every single day and then suddenly this one thing happen and it's, it happens and it's the tipping point to then their future success. Um, and I like to think that 